Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is October the 4th, 2020. And I am reaching out to a new podcaster, and I want to see exactly what his material is about. Um, He's a former Hells Angel, and he is actually the president. Uh, And so he's telling inspiring stories. So let's give a listen. What's happening, guys? Welcome to the Start Today podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cavallini. Today, we have a very special episode for you, one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. I have a guest in the studio today who is someone who is thoroughly familiar with the taste of rock bottom. Mel Chancy is a former president of the most well-known outlaw biker gang the world has ever known. That, of course, being the Hells Angels. He was the youngest president in the group's 72-year history, becoming president of the Angels at just 23 years of age. He's been to hell and back on more than one occasion, served multiple prison sentences, led the charge during the notorious Hells Angel and Outlaw War, a six-year bloodbath that has come to be known as one of the most deadly, violent gang wars in the history of organized crime. As the leader of the Hells Angels, He's been implicated in criminal activities ranging from drug trafficking, extortion, murders, bombings, and too many shootings to recall. And he actually lived to tell about it. At one point, federal law enforcement agencies considered him to be one of the most wanted and dangerous gangsters in the entire country. Ultimately, he was targeted and brought down through the RICO Act. The racketeer influence and Corrupt Organizations Act is a federal law that provides for extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. And it was also something that was formed specifically to bring down the bosses of organized crime syndicates. Today, Mel walks a different path. He walks the path of righteousness. He's involved with many successful business endeavors, including Core Medical Group, the IFBB, and MPC, where he hosts professional fitness competitions, as well as being the right-hand man to Jim Mannion, the owner and founder of the MPC and president of the IFBB. He's a speaker, philanthropist, and a catalyst for positive, lasting change for grown-ups and children alike. His story that will be discussed today is so extraordinary that he's currently in negotiations with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his production company, Seven Bucks Entertainment, to film a docuseries outlining his life story. But once upon a time, Mel was one of the most feared, ruthless, violent outlaws that you'll ever hear about. He took his oath as the leader of the Hells Angels very seriously and unleashed his fury on rival gangs or anyone else involved in organized crime that dared oppose him. Although a true blood criminal, Mel never hurt innocent people. His wrath was saved exclusively for other outlaws who he 
fellow angels were at war with or anyone who made the mistake of hurting the people he cared about. Mel once served a four-year prison sentence following an incident which involved an ex-girlfriend. After being made aware that a former girlfriend of his, who he was still very close and had remained good friends with, had been severely beaten by her new boyfriend, Mel and a couple of his angel brothers broke into the boyfriend's home and with the assistance of a baseball bat, duct tape, firearms, and a pair of pliers, taught this woman beater a lesson he would never forget. Mel, take us back to that day and, and, and just walk us through how it all went down. Okay, so, um, you know, uh, the girl was an ex-girlfriend of mine that I was very close with her family still, and um, you know, we broke up just because I had so many different things going on in life and so many different women going on, so I still had a lot of feelings for her, and her sister reached out to me to tell me about how the previous the boy the boyfriend she was with at the time was laying his hands on her beating her up and real jealous you know wouldn't let her you know a guy would look at her he'd take it out on her so um once that got made to my attention um i happened to give the girl a call on a sunday and we didn't talk too much bro because she was pretty upset with me for breaking up sure. with her and she had to find a new dude but you obviously still cared about her not still to. cared about her her family owned a bar that we hung out in i was tight with her mother and father and uh you know she still had to see me inside the bar with different various of girls that sure. i had back in the day so <clears throat> we didn't have the best relationship you know she was scorned at me but i reached out to her on this sunday afternoon because i, I found it hard to believe that she would be letting this go on you know, and um, she answered the phone and, you know, I said to her, I said, hey, Kendall, I said, what's what's going on, man? What's this? I hear that you're you're in this kind of abusive relationship. Well, lo and behold, I didn't know that he was in the car. Right? Mm-hmm. So he grabbed a phone and threw me, shot me some choice words and said, hey, you know, Mind your own we business. Got, hey, <laughs> hey, motherfucker. He said, I got a, a bullet with your name on it. Don't oh, think I'm afraid God. of you because you're the leader of the Hells Angels. I got a crew. And he went into that mode on me. So after I smashed the home phone that I called him on because I was irate, <clears throat> then next the next day, Monday, me and two of, the, two of the other guys went over to her mom and dad's house to sit down and talk about what was going on. Her dad being an ex-Marine, he was not happy with what was happening here. He had all kinds of crazy plans, and we were trying to tell him, all right, Pop, slow it down, man. Let's see what's going on. <clears throat> Lo and behold, that Monday evening, a, a, a knock on the door comes, or a ring on the doorbell comes at her at the, at the parents' house, and her mom gets up to go see who's at the door. The door opens, and uh, here comes Kendall in, pretty banged up, you know, um, eye swollen, socket, you know, uh, I think he broke her orbital from, from orbit, from what, what we were understanding, banged up. And um, so we hear her mom scream, and we go in the kitchen, and and uh, in the doorway and we see what's going on with her and her dad goes crazy and starts loading guns up and we're telling him slow down slow down right you can't go do this craziness you know so the plan was a johnny on the spot plan you know and being who we were we were so used to that lifestyle everything was on the spot with us you know you knew what to do we knew what to do so my one you know my one brother you know i call him the other (laughs) co-defendants he uh he said, hey, I'll be back. I'm running to the house. I go right on. And we stayed there, and we kind of... 
and, and you knew what that meant. We knew. I knew what that meant. Yeah, we oh, kind of was helping her out. We, do, you, do you mind elaborating on when someone says, "Hey, I'm going to the house"? Yeah, he's. So we had. Uh, we always had the, the toolkit set up for what we needed to do if we found out some bad guys were somewhere, and we went and got. You know, if we can some certain things, the ball bats, the pliers, the. You know, we always had firearms on our bodies sure. and stuff like that. But if we knew we were going to go do a number on somebody, that was the toolkit. We got out the tool bag, <clears throat> and uh, so. I stayed at the house with the other with the uh, with the other uh, member, and uh, there was three of us, and uh, we, you know, kind of were walking through with her dad what was going to happen and stuff, and we had to give her some pain pills because she was in pain and stuff, and she would have never went for the idea. So as much as this was happening to her through the years, and I'm going to take you back in a time where it's it was uh, pre OJ, so OJ changed the law of what was going on. So before OJ and Nicole, if a girl if a guy beat up his girl and she called the police and the police came and put the charge on him, if she didn't show up in court, they SOL'd it. They called it throw it out. Yeah. After the OJ and Nicole thing, it didn't matter. Once that charge was put on you, the state picked it up, Got right? It. So we know that. So that's what changed that law. And that's what the time frame we're in, that 96 to 7 area. <clears throat> so she, this happened to her about five or six times and she just never went to court because he'd say, I love you. And she, I love you. You know, women get in these relationships. Yeah. They can't get out. They just love the guy. She loved them. And, uh, he was just so jealous. So we, we knew that she wasn't going to go for anything. So we pain pilled her up a little bit and made her mood. Okay. And we told her, Hey, listen, we're going to go back to your dad's house. So the, the gentleman I'm talking about was her stepdad and her real mom, her real dad, who her mom and were separated from, they were renting this house from him, so it was his house. So <clears throat> we said, uh, we're going to go, but we'll go there. We're going to take you with us, Kendall. We're going to get pack up some of your stuff. When we leave, you're going to call him up and tell him to come and get all his stuff out. And tomorrow, your real dad's going to come and change the locks on this house. And you're going to come back home with your mother and George. Sure. <clears throat> she said, okay. But the whole time, we knew. We knew we were just spinning right. her what we needed to do. So, um, so we went it was real cold i was like i think the actual date is december 16th of 96 because you don't forget them days sure freezing out probably 20 below in chicago and uh, we drove over to the house george and kendall drove together and we got in the house and you know we took the fellow started packing up some of her stuff with her clothes and stuff like that but we had her call him on the phone when she called him on the phone and told him what the plan was we knew he was going to be, no, Kendall, please, I'm sorry. Right. I'm on my way. Please don't leave. And she's like, Brian, I'm here with George. Come get your stuff when we leave. And my dad's changing his locks on it tomorrow. And we're done. It's a wrap with us. We're done. And no, Kendall, I love you. I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be right there. And the whole time we're behind the scenes going, our plan's working because we wanted to lure him there. So um, so that that that's what that's what we did. We were doing that. And he came to the house, just like we knew he would about 15 minutes later. And then the plan was as soon as he walked into the door that George was going to get Kendall out the back door because, of course, she didn't know what was happening and stuff like that. And and that's what happened. So him and and one of his his guys walked in the door together, not knowing we were there, coming in to, you know, see Kendall. And then one of my guys shut the door behind him and... Um, popped on the light. I'm sitting on the, 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 the couch, the living room couch, and he sees me. And what were you weighing in at that time? Oh, I was always around 290. That was my going weight back in them days. Yeah. And, you know, I was always 
real big like that. That, that could be a, a pretty intimidating sight for our listeners. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, you go into a, a situation like that, the light flickers on, you have the 290-pound boss of the Hells Angels sitting on your couch. Yeah. yeah. Welcome home. Welcome yeah. home. So, and he knew me from the nightclub. Like I said, her stepdad owned this big this big club. A lot of us hung out, and, and he was hanging out there because she bartended. So he knew me, and I didn't know him, but he knew of the whole presence and seeing me out and stuff like that. Sure. So, you know, <clears throat> so when he looked at me and he was like, oh, hey, hey, bro. <laughs> Hey, bro. Is Kendall here? And I said, oh. I said, well, now I'm your bro. I said, but yesterday you were telling me to go F my mother and the whole nine yards, which made me smash the phone. I said, so no, Kendall's not here, you know. I said, but, uh, you know, we're, we're here and we're going to talk. His friend that he brought into the house, um, I knew a story where uh, this, this gentleman was beating Kendall up at the time, and his friend stopped him and said, hey, you ain't doing that shit in front of me. And I knew that story, and I asked him if that if he was that guy, and he told me yes. And I said, well, I got some respect for you for doing that, you know. <clears throat> and that's when he said, I don't want no part of this. And, and, and that's when he told me, he said, can I leave? And I said, no, we can't let you go because I don't know where you're going to go. Yeah. So, you know, you're gonna, they're going to secure you somewhere in here. What, what, are, what does that mean? When you're done. So they took him in the basement, you know, tied him up, put him in the basement and stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, he he got out the window. But uh, let me get to that. So sure. and, and I told him, you know, I, I don't know where you're going to go. They were some street guys, you know, and they had some some friends too. So I didn't know if they were going to go uh, bring back ten guys. We're going to be in a shootout in the house. Yeah. So um, and he did, he was cool with that. He didn't want no part of it. I said, but he just wanted to get out of the situation. Yeah, I said because it's going to be a bad scene for your dude here. And you know, we knew the kid. He we we heard the kid was good with his hands and stuff like that. He was a fighter. So as my two guys were. You know, done moving some of her stuff and getting her stuff together. Um, you know, me and him tussled in this in this little small hallway, and it wasn't working out for him. You know, I was heavy, I was big, I could fight, and uh, so duct tape him, put him in a chair, straight up chair like this, roll a duct tape around him and stuff, and that's when the baseball bat comes out because I'm going to teach him a lesson for the beatings that he's given her, the police reports and stuff. And that's where my frame of mind was. You know, I was in that frame of mind like, you should have not been doing this to somebody that was that close to me. You knew, you know what I mean? And people were around telling him like, he's going to get wind of this, man. This is not a good situation to do, you know? I think honestly, it also just kind of puts into perspective the frame of mind you were in at that time that even though... I mean, look, you're an outlaw, right? You're breaking the law. Like, you were prepared for whatever scenario presented itself that day. Yeah. But in that moment, you know, you had the foresight to recognize another guy who was kind of guilty by association. And that could have went a different way. And yeah. I'm sure there were situations before where, you know, you guys had conflicts with other gangs and, 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 and criminals where you guys got into where people were casualties of circumstance. And I think that really kind of says a lot about you that even in your most psychotic days mm -hmm. you still had a good heart and that's something that I didn't really include in my bio because I kind of wanted to make it a little dramatic and all yeah, that yeah yeah but guys like Mel Johnson is one of the scariest looking individuals that you will ever see like Google Google his name and you're gonna see he looks like it if you close your eyes there what would the president of the Hells Angels look like like, that's Mel. He looks exactly what you would think, but he's also one of the most kind-hearted, genuine, 
caring, compassionate, empathetic individuals that I've ever had the privilege to meet. And I've told you this in private many times, and I, I will continue to, to, to repeat that sentiment because it's special. You're special. And just to share a little personal story, you know, this is, uh, you've come to Nutrition Solutions and, 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 and spoke to our team multiple times, which yeah. I'm so grateful for. You've impacted the lives of people all over the world, but a lot of people here at the company. And uh, it's really, really amazing that you know they have the opportunity to to learn from you, for you to share their share your story. And you know, here we got people that have been through it, oh, right? yeah. been yeah. through their own trials and tribulations, and hearing the story and, and just the extraordinary circumstances of your life, it it gives them more than inspiration. It gives them hope. And, uh, you know, I have firsthand knowledge that there's multiple people who literally Mel met at a, at a talk he did at the company coming through and spent some time talking to, and then ultimately gave his personal phone number to. Yeah. And that is not something that is common. It's not something you see. And I will tell you that it just means so much to me. And I know it means a lot to them. And that, that, that's who Mel Chauncey is present day. And I believe you were always that person to a certain extent. Yeah. But backing up, man, how do you get, how do you get into the Hells Angels? What drew you to that life and what brought you to that place? Well, the guys that I, so I, I signed up at a little gym back in the day, you know, and this is in the 80s where the little key gym was 10 bucks a month. <clears throat> get the key, you go anytime you want. And um, there was two guys in there and they were two guys, they were bigger guys. They wore jeans, work boots, you know, probably didn't train much of legs back in those days, <laughs> but they were big upper bodies yeah. and stuff. And they were involved in a motorcycle club called the Hell's Henchmen, okay. which we ended up, well, that group became the Hell's Angels. Got we it. started the first chapter in the Midwest. Chicago was through us. <clears throat> so the guys that showed me how to train and deadlift and the crazy training that we all know about that makes you that massive big bodybuilder were the same dudes that showed me how to were you aware when you first met them and would see them at the gym and i'm sure you know they're bigger they're older little you're a younger guy yeah. you look up to them were you 16? aware of what they were like of what they did or how long into you forming a relationship with them did you become made aware that they were outlaw bikers well not too long maybe a few months if you know if i had to take a guess because how, how weird it worked out too is and a lot of people don't know this story so my daughter who's now 34 and I was 16 just turning 17 when, when my girl at the time had her she lived on the corner uh, um, in this town right in my neighborhood called in Crestwood and two doors down was one of the guys that was in the gym they were neighbors so you know when I first seen him pull in the driveway and I said to, to my daughter's mom you know Jenny her name was I said Hey man, I see that dude in my gym, and she's like, "Oh, that's Johnny. That's our neighbor Johnny. Long ponytail, goatee, you know, tatted from his neck down. Like I said, wore jeans and worked construction, big upper body. And I said, "Man, I want to look like that. You know, I wanted <laughs> yeah. that look." And he had a crazy chopper. So when I was, ju I wasn't 16 yet when I got kicked out of high school. So there was a there was a fight in in the high school. I was part of the fight. Me and another guy threw some people through the library window, getting kicked out of school. My mom had to come. They had me in an office. My mom was talking to the dean when they let me in the office. I seen my mother crying. You know, I know a lot of the viewers know I was just took care of my mother until she passed at 90 years old. I came from a very tight family. <clears throat> so when I seen my mom crying in the dean's office, I said, well, Mom, what, what are you crying for? 
and that's when he was like, well, if your mother knew how to control her son, and, you know, he, he was doing that. So I jumped over the desk, socked him in the nose. The dean, the dean, socked him in the nose, broke his nose. I ran out of the, the, the office, ran through the neighborhood, you know, did the warrior scene all the way home. Where were you going? Go. I was going back to my mom and dad's okay. house, right? But I was just j- jiving through the neighborhood. I sure. heard the sirens. Yeah. I seen the police cars out looking. So I made it all the way, you know, like 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 a 25-minute run through these houses home to my mom's house. I get to my mom's house. <clears throat> and at the time, she's running the bank in the town, which she became a crossing guard later for it. But everybody knew our family. Yeah. My dad was the baseball coaches for all the kids. I mean, the Chansey family in, in this town we grew up in, Elsa, was my mom ran the bank. My dad ran all the... the, the the sports with the uh, baseball I was on the baseball team they were there waiting for me so anyways I wasn't you know I wasn't 16 yet my mom and dad had to pay for the for the you know for the damages to the to the dean they kicked me out of the district I was going to have to go to another district so my mom was going to have to drive me 40 minutes away take me to school and I basically told her mom I'm gonna you're gonna drop me off at the front door and I'm walking out the back school and me is a wrap I don't want to go no more so she signed me out so it was great because it was summer and my, my family was, you know, a good middle class family. My dad, hard worker, my mom working, my two sisters. We had a big pool in the yard. So I'm lounging in the pool every day thinking this is great at 16. And then one day my mom came home with some construction boots and she said, you're going to work. <laughs> and I went to work for my uncle's concrete company. And that's what got me into the concrete. And sure. lo and behold, that's what this John was doing in concrete so when i couldn't get along with my uncle after a year because he was a, a slave driver so sure. to say he lived for that hard work and i went i went and got on john's crew and then that's when i got my first motorcycle at 16 years old 17 years old i was able to get my first iraq back in the day them were the big cars i got a harley everybody else was on the school bus and i was pouring concrete all <laughs> making, day making money making you know 17 18 bucks an hour back, yeah, back then, then. that had to be 87 86 yeah. somewhere around there yeah, manual you know, labor pays well it's hard work hard work oh, but yeah. i was you know I, I had the fruits of it i was able to buy what i wanted to you know so once i got the motorcycle and stuff and then you know i started hanging around with the with the hell's henchmen and going to their parties and <laughs> seeing what it was like and seeing the girls and the guys on the bikes with the colors on and stuff like that you know i got bit by that bug and i was training with them guys and stuff like that so at the time, <clears throat> the rule was you had to be 21 years right. old to get into a motorcycle mm-hmm. club. You know, you got to be in a bar and stuff. So um, the, this guy who ended up being my sponsor, which he, he's, he's right here on this tombstone, Big Al, and he got killed in 92. With, was, was that in the war? With the war stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going down one night, and it's real cold out. It's winter. We're in the car, and he said, okay, I'm bringing you up for hang around prospect or for prospect status. Which basically bring, means you go from being a nobody to being officially yes, in the game. prospect. Yeah, kind of like I see you do here. Yeah. I mean, with your with your thing, with you're very FNGs. structured here, and it reminds yeah. me of that. You know, these guys, your team earns their way up to, 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 to the ladder, you know, to prospect. <clears throat> yes. So I said, okay, Al, and he goes, and Al was a big, heavy set guy. We, his nickname, we called him Slob, because he, was, he wasn't, you know, the obese fat bastard fat yeah yeah but he was six foot two heavy yeah. god barrel chested bark, bark, biker <laughs> you know so we said all right when we get there and they get you in the room you're 21 
And how old were you? 17. Got it. He's like, you're 21, you that's, got it? And I go, yeah. He goes, okay, they're going to ask you. That's and really I go, okay, he goes, you look fucking 30. Yeah. And I, because I had a goatee, you know, already, I was already kind of yeah. built, sure. training a little bit, all natural still, yeah. but I had a nice little build. I was pouring concrete, so I was, you know, look surfer big, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, so he gets me in the room with the president, the vice president, the sergeant arms, all the officers, right? And they said, so you want to make this official, huh? You want to be a prospect? Yeah. You know, we're at, you know, we're at war with another motorcycle club, you know? And I said, okay, yeah, I know that. And they said, okay, you know, you're ready for all that? And I said, yeah. You know, this lifestyle could throw you in prison, could throw you in, you know, the grave. I, I know, I'm ready, I'm ready, okay. The president, he says, okay. Hey, man, how, how old are you exactly? You know, we know you're a youngster, but how old are you exactly? And I'm looking around the room, and I got a case of paranoia, scaredness. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I can't lie to these yeah. guys, right? Yeah. And I go, uh... I'm 17, but I'm going to be 18 in February. And they looked around, they go, what? And they look at Al, and Al goes, you told me you were 21. And I go, yeah, of course I did. I said, I didn't want to let you down. I said, and I went with the flow with them, right? So they were like, ah, no, you can't, uh, we can't do that, man. You got to be 21. I said, okay, but you can be our friend, and you can come to the parties and stuff. And I said, good with that. So that 35-minute ride home from that clubhouse back to our neighborhood was very intimidating for me because Al was really pissed off at me. And I said, bro, I got scared, man. It was like, intimidating uh, situation yeah, to be in for a young man. man. I'm in the clubhouse of the, the, the Hell's Henchman, who is, you know, is a notorious motorcycle club here, yeah. you know. He goes, ah, oh, I get it, I get it. So one year later, I kind of disappear. I'm training, working, just doing my own thing, seeing the guys at the bars once in a while. I wasn't going to the clubhouse. They invited me down for a big party. I went down for the party. They bring me in the room, and the president at the time, he goes, how old are you now? And I go, 19, man. It's only a year later. He goes, fuck, you're getting age terrible. He goes, you look you, you know, you look like you're in your mid-20s, you yeah. know? And the pictures you've seen of me at 23, oh, yeah. I mean, I look like a grown-up. Yes. Man. And uh, so they're like, listen, man, you got a lot of heart. You're always, the guys are always seeing you out and this and that, so we're going to, we're going to bend the rules, man. If you want to come around and be in the club, then you can you can start prospecting. And that's not something club. that was common or done. Maybe perhaps had never be done at that time in that organization as far as them breaking the rules. That's really bending the yeah, rules. But. Yeah, bending the rules. Yeah, man, breaking their own rules, so to say, you know. And uh, I was like, okay, cool, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, and you know, that's how I, I worked my way in into the club with the, with the Hell's Henchmen, you know. And... Um, we were fighting with another motorcycle club, a local motorcycle club in Chicago, but it was, you know, as I call it, and I know you laugh, I call it the, the, the school ground fights. Yeah. Beating each other up in the bars, ball peen hammers, some axe handles if they can get, you know, they were you trying to use the axe handles on us. And, you know, they... They're not deadly. Not, not deadly for like shooting that. to kill yeah. or nothing like that. You know, they, they grabbed a few of our guys one time, four or five guys in a bar, and there was about 20 of them, and jumping on the guys, kicks to the head, the stuff like that. Which I always say is the playground stuff because obviously later what we get into sure. is much different. Yeah. So, um, and I was out. I remember, man, them guys were like, "What time you uh, start your start your morning at the, on the job site? Six thirty. Okay, we'll have you home by five thirty. You can have an hour to make your lunch and go. Gotcha. So I spent many a nights out with the guys, you know, cruising around looking for the crews, you know, doing this and doing that, and then going right to work. You know, so then it wasn't too long after that. The fellas showed me 
the drug game, the cocaine game and stuff like that. And I said, man, these guys are making a, you know, a couple grand a, a week yeah. <laughs> slinging some drugs. It's much easier than pouring concrete. me pouring concrete all day and being tired all sure. night. So I uh, went to the, the people I worked for and I said, hey, guys, you guys have been good to me. And now I, I had my own crew. I was a foreman. I was real good at foundations i was real good at finishing you know i was young so i was in you know i was just in that gung-ho mood i liked the money and i liked the work you know and i gave my two-week notice and my boss says to me man mel where are you going is there can i do something to keep you here and i said no bro i'm starting a drug empire and he looked at me all crazy and he goes what and i said yeah man i'm done working i'm done you know and that's how i started man i started out with the little eight balls and you know and i know i know how that you game know goes. how yeah, yeah you know how and then the next thing i know before i know it it's the keys and it's the let's not jump around too much so you were made i don't know the process are you are you elected was it a hostile takeover how did you become the president of the angels at 23 because okay. that's a big deal yeah so the former president who was the president of the hell's henchman for all these years he was probably the president for 15 16 years mm-hmm. into the merge with the hell's angels and how old was he um geez he's in his upper 70s now i'm 51 so yeah, he's about 20 he, years older he, than you yes yeah so if um yeah he was probably in his 40s at his, the time his, his, his upper 40s Got mid it. upper 40s and um so once we start, we started, you know, once we became Hell's Angels and things got on such a bigger picture, yeah. you now you're talking about worldwide, yeah, yeah. not just four different chapters through the Midwest, you know, it got taxing and time consuming and stuff. <clears throat> and he worked a full-time gig. He retired from a, from a, um, a trucking company. So I ended up becoming like, I was the Sergeant of Arms at the time for, for us, for, for, for the henchmen, in, into the angel merge I was our sergeant of arms and uh, it, it got to be too much for the for the president so one day I walked into a meeting and I was a few minutes late and if you're late you call up hey man I get stuck sure. on a trainer I'm a few minutes late yep. man and pardon me I'm, I'm right there and I walked into the meeting and everybody was in there and uh I sat down and they said, so my nickname was Road, mm-hmm. which you just didn't find it out Last of all night. the years. Yeah, I've known, known you for years. I've never known that. Remind me to tell you that story, how I got the name. But anyways, <laughs> um, they said, hey, Road, listen, man, we took a vote and uh, you're not the sergeant of arms anymore. And I said, really? How could you guys take a vote without me being here? How are you bringing this up to me and you're not, you're not being here? I said, I'm not the sergeant of arms. I'm like, man, I bleed this chapter. What are you talking about? And that's when, that's when uh, Jerry, his name was, he said to me, he goes, hey, man, we nominated you to be the president. I was like, what? Wow, man, I'm taking to- back. So totally unexpected. Totally Didn't no vote. Yeah, because every year is a vote for the, for, the, for the leaderships, and it's a vote. One man, one vote, you know? Somebody, if you, know, you want to bring somebody up to run, they vote on him. But usually in that deal, whoever's the president, and if, of course, and he's doing a good job and things are going well, it's really he's going to keep the reins, you know, for a while. You know, he, you know, but you still vote on him. No one's going to run against him. He's the, he's the boss. Sure. But he stepped down and did this on his own. He brought it up to the guys and said, I think he's going to be perfect for us as our president. He gets around. He knows everybody. I traveled everywhere. I was in California. I was in New York. I was just traveling yeah. and maintaining what was happening. But things got gritty there is when we switched over to become Hell's Angels because the outlaws who were the dominant Midwest motorcycle club at the time who were at war with the Hell's Angels from the late 60s, 69, 70, 
did not like that. And when they found out we were doing that merge, we sat down with them at a table while we were still henchmen, and we told them, yes, we are going Hell's Angel, and we are doing this move. And we were in a restaurant, about six guys, and six of them, six of us, and that's when they got up from the table and said, well, there's no more discussions here, boys. We'll see you when we see you. Yeah. And I knew it was live then because yeah. them dudes were serious dudes. We're going we're gonna to get into the war because, you know, you and I last night smoked one mm-hmm. or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You shared some just, I mean, look, we've been knowing each other for a long time. You yeah. shared some awesome stories. We always have some good conversations. But last night was special, mm-hmm. and uh, the war was something else, man. I didn't know it was that as big of a deal as it actually was. And I want to I want to segue into that a little bit. But I think what's worth pointing out, and uh, I failed to mention this at the beginning, is uh, I've known of Mel Chauncey for a long time. I've, I, I said this this morning when I gave him his intro to the team before he talked. I've looked up to Mel for a long time. I used to look up to him for reasons that are no longer consistent with the direction of either of our lives. But when I was in high school and I was getting in trouble and I, I mean, look, I was arrested 17 times before I turned 18 and the majority of those arrests happened between like my junior and senior year. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, um, I didn't have that support system, you know, at, at home to basically help me get my shit together whether that be beating my ass or or whatever had to happen like i was on the path that i was on and there was no there was no stopping the momentum the 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 bad momentum the negative toxic momentum that i was creating for myself so i used to be oddly fascinated with the show oz and i was also oddly fascinated with gangsters with real life outlaws with uh with, with with crime with the mob, with the angels, with people like Mel, and uh, I knew, I knew about Mel. I knew, I knew what this man stood for back then. I, uh, you know, funny story about that show Oz, which, which is so fucking crazy. I was obsessed with that show. I idolized you, but I never made the connection that you were you on Oz. Yeah. So Mel was in a a, a, a really famous TV show back in the late 90s called Oz. It was a HBO series about life in prison and I became obsessed with that show because it basically showed like life in prison, the different gangs, the whatever. I was so obsessed with that show that when I was 15 years old, my second tattoo that I got was uh, a tattoo on my left arm that a guy, the Ryan O'Reilly, the yeah, Irish kid yeah, in yeah. there, that he had. I mean, I was literally thinking that ultimately that was going to be my life so i was i was fucking in it yeah, yeah. and uh it's really really interesting you know because obviously both of us have changed our lives changed our lives and uh you know now i look up to you for much much different reasons but i want to know the audience wants to know i mean i already know but right i want to get it out of you talk to me about the lifestyle talk to me about the day-to-day talk to me about your roles and responsibilities when you're at war, which we'll get into that more in detail. Like, you're not just walking the streets. You're not just going to the gym to train normally. You're not just going to the bars and hanging out. You're doing those things, but you're doing it in a very deliberate way. So talk to me about the day-to-day lifestyle, operation, and overall mindset that you had as the president of the Hells Angels. Yeah. So it was definitely, um, how do 
I want to say it. It was definitely hectic now that I look back at it. But with me training and loving the gym and stuff like that, that was that was the love of my day. So I, I, every day that I trained, I needed to go to the gym. Well, obviously, the other team knew where, where I was going to this gym. I trained at this Gold's Gym. <clears throat> so they, of course, knew where I was. I was always out running. I was young. So at nighttime, I was out hitting partying. all the strip clubs, yep. partying. You know, as, as, as I'll tell the viewers, but as a lot of people know of me, I've always had multiple girlfriends in my life all at the same time. You know, I had a girl that I, when it was over with, after the first prison sentence, I was with her eight years, six years, four years. Kendall was the two-year one, and I had them all set up in different spots, a house, a townhouse, an apartment, and that was, you know, the spots where they lived, and I bounced around. The eight-year girl, her name was Nancy, that was my queen bee at the time i sheltered everything from her but the rest knew about each other but i kept everything from nancy because that was the one back in the day that i thought i was going to ride my life out with i sheltered her from the club i didn't bring her around that stuff i was going and doing all the other stuff without her knowing she if, if she thought i was out of town or whatever so <clears throat> then i was out constantly in the clubs you know with the normal chicks you know so i had you know we call it the harem back then everybody's like yeah mel keeps that harem and uh, so I was constantly out. I mean, it was, but when you're was, in the gyms, you told me you'd be in there with the team of security yes, as yes. you're training. I just couldn't imagine walking into a gym and seeing that. That would be a very intimidating. Yes. So you know, at first I, it wasn't like that. I'd be training in the gym. I'd have my gym bag next to me with the guns in it and stuff, and I'd do a set and kind of look out and make sure that nobody was bum rushing the gym. Yeah. But then after they were calling the gyms and we were hearing the grumbles and they went to a few other gyms looking for me i don't know if it was just to throw me off maybe they'd think i would they didn't i didn't know maybe to get oh they're looking at the gym 20 minutes away they don't know where i'm at i knew they knew where i was at that's when i that we put the team together that was my security team so when i was down when i was training they were at the front door and the you know sitting up you know by the shake counter and stuff like that pistoled out anybody comes in looking like they didn't belong in that gym yeah my guys were going to see where they were. You came in with some tattoos and some facial hair. Oh, you could believe my guys that they didn't know you. Hey, what's what are you doing? Who are you? You know, they didn't let nobody get by me. Taking girls out to dates, man, taking them out to the nice places in Chicago. I mean, the most expensive restaurants because I'm making a ton of money back then. So basically during the, 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 the height of the war, you're not trying to be low key. You're not no. trying to be discreet. You're literally doing the opposite of that. I'm driving around in a Corvette with Mr. 187 on the plate. You which, know, which 187, for those was, who don't know? the penal code for murder, you know. Um, so I'm flamboyant. I have business cards that, that have made that said, Crime Incorporated, we supply what you demand. I'm just pushing the button at the federal prison going, take me in, take me in, right? Not knowing it at the time, <laughs> but I mean, I'm just I get it. flamboyant. I get it. 23, 24 years old, making a gang of cash and having the club on the track of i mean we were outnumbered in chicago as far as revenues you're making a ton of cash the majority of income that you guys had coming in was from the drug game and the guns and the guns got it the drugs and the guns you know i was able to get you know nice source of revenue through both yeah i didn't have a care nor i had the girls i had the money i had the different spots you know and i was living that you know i don't want to say everybody's dream because not everybody's doing that but i'm living at 23 years old i'm like I'm like a kid in Toys R Us. Like they opened up the door and they said, son, run through here. Everything's free. And I'm running through, right? You know, and keeping the crew on track and keeping us, you know, making sure we're taking care of business. And that 
we were very outnumbered in, in Chicago, you know, from the other from the other side, you know. The outlaws were very, very dominant there, man. And, uh, you know, at the height of everything, you know, we had 27 guys. And in all the areas around us, the outlaws put their crews together. I mean, they can put 120 guys together in, you know, in 30 minutes of phone calls. So we were really, you know, outnumbered. But what kept us strong was the unity we had with each other. We had a young crew, me being the youngest, but I showed you a picture, and we had a very young crew, and uh, most of the guys trained. Back then, there was no MMA, so we were just all pounding on the bags. Sure. You had to make sure you were in shape, and you couldn't be so big that, you know, you were in a bar and you couldn't fight. You had to so be ready to go. That's why I was, everybody's like, man, Mel's good with his hands, because I practiced as I was growing. Sure. So as I was 290 pounds, I could still get on that bag and work that heavy bag, because we were, you never know, we were fighting in bars with just street people from Chicago. Chicago was a rough place back in the day. It still is. Chicago, yeah. I mean, you just got to get a guy that gets stabbed in the bar and they're shooting pool over him. Nobody breaks stride back, you know, back then. So um, it was very, very hectic. It got to the point where, like I said, I, I was I would take a girl out for, you know, let's go downtown to Tavern on Rush and eat tonight. Okay, babe. Okay, and then the three guys are sitting at the table next to me. Sometimes they'd sit at the table with me and stuff. But if it was like the girl and I was trying to have like a halfway romantic dinner with her, the fellows would be like, we'll just be at the table next year, I'd be at the bar right here and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was crazy. You know, I became, without knowing, I became public enemy number one to the federal government. To the to, to, Back then, Janet Reno was the, was the attorney general of the United States. Uh, Janet Reno was. And um, if the things got so crazy with the bombings and the shootings and everything like that, that the government put a full court press on us, you know, um, and Janarino named it Operation Lucifer. And uh, so what happened under, under this Operation Lucifer case, they raided five of us. Me, the vice president, the sergeant of arms, the secretary, the treasurer. They raided five of us on this one morning. And uh, they locked us all up and, the, and they really got nothing. At one of the guy's houses, they were scraping cocaine off a mirror. I mean, little minute dust like that. My house... They grabbed a drawer full of steroids, which I took back, and everybody knew I was taking steroids. They grabbed about 32 different guns that were locked up in a safe, and my girl had a, a gun card at the time. I didn't, but I wasn't a felon, so they couldn't charge me with none of the guns that were in the house. And um, so they charged me with um, inositol, and I know you're probably familiar with that, which is a vitamin B. It's called inositol. And, uh, but back in the day, everybody cut their cocaine with it because right. it was white, it didn't smell, it was you know pure, it was a vitamin. Yep. And um, so I had a big jar of it, a one-pound jar or whatever like that. So they said that they uh, did some testing on it, and they said I cross-contaminated it by putting the spoon from the cocaine. And they charged me with a pound of cocaine, which when we went to court, it, everything got dropped because it was all just pure inositol. So long story short, that Operation Lucifer got everybody a misdemeanor so you could imagine how pissed, how off, pissed she was. off the government was when because let's just paint the picture because people who've never been through the system don't understand Janet the man Rayo hours the time evil. the energy the money like they're fully fucking committed their their purpose their agenda months some in some cases years yeah. of their life yeah. is dedicated 
to one thing, and that's getting a conviction. Yes, a solid conviction and not a misdemeanor. No. (laughs) I mean, it was so bad at the end, they were like, hey, will your clients plead guilty to one year in prison? And our lawyers were like, no, we'll go to trial. Right. So then finally they were like, okay, they couldn't charge me for the distribution of steroids because what got them in our houses was three consecutive trash pickups. Mm. They were taking my trash from the street. We didn't know it. They were getting syringes out of me because I was injecting myself and everything like that. So they tried to charge me with the distribution of steroids, which would have been the felony, but they couldn't get it for, on me because obviously I was a bodybuilder taking the hormones. You know, they had the broken needles in there, the broken ampules and stuff like that. So, like I said, I pled guilty to a misdemeanor, got a year supervision. So did the other four guys. They got nothing on them. It was a big flop. And that's when I knew right then and there that the shit was on. The shit was on. And now we were at kind of, so to say, a war with the federal government. So now there, now, now there is, in fact, two wars. Going yeah, on. two wars going on. I used, I say it all the time. I had the, the yeah, other guys that were trying to knock my head off my shoulders and put it on a mailbox stick. And I had the government that was trying to give, you know, pump me sunlight in a, through 100 years in prison and put me under, under a prison. So, you know, we had two fronts going on. We were trying to fight everything. So once the war got crazier with the outlaws and the, the, the bombings happened, you know, that's the third largest car bomb that you see on the gangland that got detonated at our clubhouse, Oklahoma. So, so was, was gangland, I'm not familiar with the TV show, I don't watch a lot of TV, mm-hmm. as you know, was that show... Um, loosely based off actual events that happened between the outlaws and the, and the angels. So there's a gangland called the Biker Wars, and it's it's in the Midwest, and it was the war between the Hell's Angels and the outlaws. And the federal agent that did my Rico, Chris Bayless, that I speak in the schools with now, he's retired. He was on top of the That was his, his thing. So they came in and did the full court press. Well, Chris Bayless, he infiltrated our Hell's Angel chapter in Rockford, Illinois, which was two hours from us. Mm. So he got in with a member that went bad. So he brought Chris around as a prospect, hang around, hang around first, and then as a prospect. He had a, he had a, uh, his story was that he was an airplane mechanic and this, this and that. Well, he knew with the federal agents that he could never meet me because he grew up in the neighborhood I was from and we have mutual people. Sure. So he could never be around me and somebody say, hey, why you got Chris with you? He's ATF agent. So, but their ploy was to get to me through the Rockford chapter, you know? So every time, so for the very first time that we were putting this plan together to go out and intercept a motorcycle club that was supporting the outlaws back in the day in Rockford, we were going to come and put a beating on them in this in this big party that they were having at this bar. I'm in California, and my guys call me up on the highway, and he says, hey, bro, we're pulled over, man. The state police got us all pulled over. And I go, why? He goes, they just descended on us and pulled us over. And I'm like, okay, I know you guys are dirty. He goes, to the teeth, bro. And I'm like, okay, man, call me. if yeah. Whatever happens, let me know, you know? So he calls me about 30 minutes later, and he goes, they let us go. They turned us around and told us to get back to Chicago. And I go, hmm, okay, pretty weird. No surgeons of the cars or nothing? No. But they knew where we were going. They said, you ain't going to that arm party. The, the name of the club was Arm. You ain't going there. Turn around, hightail it back. Okay, I said, okay. Coincidence, fluke, no big deal. I didn't think much of it, you sure. know. Well, then another yeah, incident, the same kind of thing. They're leaving the clubhouse in Rockford, and they got about 20 of my guys in Chicago there. I'm not another. I'm not there again, and they're going out to, to, to rock and roll with this other team. They all get pulled over down the street. They call me up on the phone, and I'm like, this is a couple months later. I said, wait a minute. 
man, what are these guys in our back pocket? How are they intercepting us when we're going to do something? His so girlfriend. the outlaws didn't have this going on. So everything they were pulling off was working. The shootings, the killings, you know, and, and the, the bombings. And they were, were like, wait a minute, we're getting, every time we go to do something, we're getting pinched they by the had... law. Lo and behold, here's the federal agent yeah. in right in the scene with the member that's telling him everything. Hey, man, you got to leave Rockford right now. So his get deal was he had pagers and stuff. When he got a page, he had to go. He was an airplane mechanic at the big airport. Yearbook. They took he took the fellas to his mom and dad's grave. The federal government does it all. Yeah, they showed everything. Oh, yeah. You know, we want to know who you are. I want to yeah, like me. I know you. I've known you for the last yeah. seven, ten years, whatever. I could say, hey, I know him, and you know, I know what he does for a living. I know him. That's how the guys want to know. So they set Chris up in this whole great role. You know, his mom and dad were dead. You know, um, he was an airplane mechanic. He had to leave on call at the drop of a dime. So whenever they knew that I was coming to Rockford with my crew, when I was personally there, Chris would get that call. The member would tell him, hey, Rhodes coming. Okay. Hey, guys, man, I got to go. I got to go to work. They just called me, you know, look at the page. I got to go. Yeah, no problem, bro, because they want you to work. You know, you can't have everybody doing crazy illegal shit. So he was working. So he got out of there. So I never had to see him. And funny story is when I seen him for the first day, when they kicked my doors in under the RICO and we all got to the federal courthouse, which was three hours away, there was four of us on this RICO thing in 2004. And I'm looking and I'm like, man, who's the biker dude with the ponytail and the big beard standing next to the U.S. attorney? And the two Rockford fellas put their heads down and me and me and my sergeant arms at the time from Chicago, he didn't know who he was either. And they put their heads down and they go, oh man, that's Chris. He was a prospect for us for a while. I said, what? Yeah, he's an ATF agent. I go, oh, F minus on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd never seen him. So that's how I got to know him from, from there on. But um, so that's when that that's when that press started with us. So they were intercepting a lot of stuff that we were going to go out to do, which in hindsight, it's probably great that that got to happen because my RICO indictment probably would have been much worse. Sure. Because they thwarted off a bunch of stuff that we were going to do and we were just all baffled. Like after the third time, we're like, something's up. Yeah. We know who do you blame? You don't know. And you're not going to go just throw that out there. Who's bad? Who's letting these guys know this? How are they knowing this? It's a complex lifestyle to live. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. So it was definitely hectic. Getting back to that, it was very hectic. But... I was out. We were out everywhere. I just refused to, to stay in. I did The only thing that we didn't do is we just didn't go ride our motorcycles freely because a couple of them guys got shot off their motorcycles on the highway. Yeah, moving open target. Oh, moving open target. Yeah. Once that started, I remember telling the crew, like, guys, man, we're in a real war. Yeah. This is hectic. We're, we lost brothers. Yeah, you got to take certain precautions. got to take I know we're a motorcycle club, and we're going to ride to the runs and stuff like that. I said, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang my motorcycle upside down like you do your bike back in the day from yeah. the rafters. And when it's time for us to go boast and ride that motorcycle, we will. Yeah. But for right now... We got to get strategic, man. And we used to run around and do our thing. You know, that's that's what kept us afloat and alive with how many guys they had. Like yeah, I said, you guys, so you guys were significantly outnumbered. And one of the things that I've known about you um, from our relationship, from hearing your stories, from reading your history, is anything that you've actually ever been involved with, right? Whether it was pouring concrete, running the angels, your uh, medical venture yeah. now the stuff that you do with the IFBB and NPC the shows that you put on the speaking that you do the people that you help winning is important to you yeah. meaning doing
doing your best and being the best and doing the best that you can to get the sought after result that is clearly something yeah. that has been instilled in you and everything that you've done in your life everything that you've wanted to make happen you've excelled at and what I basically want to know is obviously you're somebody who leads by example and you're somebody who's always led by example now one could make the argument some of the examples that you set back in a former life yeah. maybe weren't the best examples but they actually were in that in that life in that, yes in that talk, to me, talk to me about the importance of leading by example and, and just give some just very specific things and, and, and references and examples uh, you know if you could yeah. of how you did that as the president of the angels so getting back to the house thing that we opened up with here you know um, you know I the fellas that were at the house with me I actually had two members of the club that were in from San Francisco they were in visiting and uh and staying with me and when i said hey man guys i gotta go you know I, I gotta go take care of this and stuff and they were like man bro you don't have to go you sit back let let our team take care of this and stuff and, and you just relax with us you know and i said no 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 i can't do that it's my venture it's my ex-girlfriend <clears throat> you know they're kind of like my family i have to be there i have to be the one that's walking through the door and doing the same thing and the same thing went for, you know, we call them the hunts, you know, when we were out hunting and looking for the, the other teams because it's what they were doing to us, you know. And I tell everybody to this day, you know, me being out of the club for so long, I talk to all kinds of guys in different clubs. I talk to outlaws. I talk to them all that are still in there. A lot of them are gone from my day and age, you know what I mean? But and some then, of them. And let's give context now because, you know, you've shared this with me, which I really appreciate. They reach out to you mm -hmm. basically in a capacity looking for looking for some support, looking for some answers, looking for some direction as far as the lifestyle they're currently in, which is that of a criminal outlaw biker, mm -hmm. and them just recognizing what you've done and then successfully exited from that life yeah. successfully, which most people probably don't do. I, I can't imagine there's actually stats on that, but I'm sure it is unbelievably low as yeah. far as people who yeah. go out of that lifestyle and actually create a, a, a legitimate lifestyle yeah. for themselves. What are these people saying to you? What are they asking you? Like, how, how do you guide them? Well, you know, I get a lot of, you know, they'll hit me up on social media and stuff, and I don't know them, you know what I mean? I don't know the guys that are in these motorcycle clubs today. So what do they say? Hey, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an outlaw, hey, yeah, I'm an angel. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And, you know, and uh, and they'll reach out and say, listen, man, I'm still active in the club. You know, I, I, I know your story. I wasn't around back in the day when you were here, but, I, you know, coming from like the poster child of that lifestyle and what you did and the transaction you did after prison and stuff you know a lot of people and i just, I just don't mean motorcycle clubs they go to prison and they come back home and they go right back to what they were doing i believe it's 70 percent. yeah I believe that's the what do they call them the recidivism or something I, like i know that. how to yeah. write it yeah i do not know how to pronounce how to it recidivism yeah. or something Recidivism. Like that. yeah they teach you before you leave but I mean, there's guys in prison that are, you know, doing years and years and years, and they're plotting about what they're going to do when they get home. So, you know, they never caught the Redemption Act, I guess, right. so to say. And they'll reach out to me and say, man, how, how did you know when it was time? And I said, I'm the type of person that <clears throat> when I can't give that 100% anymore, it's not for me no more. I can't give it. Kind of like the, with the bodybuilding at Dorian Yates. I remember him doing an interview when he said, I couldn't train 100%. I couldn't do that no more. It was time for me to go. Same thing for me, you know, and I tell them, you know, I said, what, you got to look around it. But I tell them this, the fact that you're reaching out to me, asking me questions about you're on the fence and you're not sure if you want to be in that 
1% world no more goes to show me that it's already in your heart because back in my day, you, I wasn't reaching out to nobody. I had the older cats telling me, Road, slow down. Would, you had zero intention or aspirations of exiting that life. You loved it. it. I loved it. I never wanted to leave that lifestyle. In, until I got sat down, until I got went to prison, until I say the good Lord and our relationship started and he took me out of the forest and I was able to see the trees because I have many friends, three three very solid friends that are my friends to, to, this, to this day, a gentleman by the name of Chuck, Jamie, and this guy, uh, Ryan, and they were chomping at the bit, begging me to come in the club. Man, come on, bro, come on. In my 13 years in the club, I sponsored one guy, mm-hmm. one guy. And I kept telling him, it's not for you guys. You guys see the glitz, see the glamour, you see the pads, the girls, the, you know, that were running around, the money and stuff. But you're not seeing it all, man. You're not there when we're closing the casket. And I tell this story on, on a dear friend of mine from Rockford that got killed and um, in the war. And I've known him, you know, was friends with him forever. And I know his daughter, and his daughter was like probably 15, 16 at the time. And, 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 and Monty had a real long, you know, White, white and salt and pepper hair, real long. And as before we were getting ready to close the casket, we put his colors over him and stuff. And his daughter jumped up in the casket and was rubbing her dad's hair and crying and stuff. And we're just sitting there looking like, geez, man, you know. I told my friends, you don't see this part. You don't see what we have to deal with behind the scenes. You don't, you don't, you don't feel it. Nobody got killed that's close to you yet. You don't, you know. And um, you know, and I remember looking at that, and you know, finally grabbing her out and holding her and stuff and closing her dad's casket and putting it down and stuff and looking at my guys and saying, you know, we did this, man. This is the lifestyle that we're doing. We could have probably helped to stop this, you know, but we just, uh, our team and our team let it go crazy. We did it. But on that note, give them one by the end of the week. I want this happening on the other side by the end of the week. And we just walked out of there. And that's how life was for us back then for me. It was nothing to, we'd be in the strip clubs and we'd have pagers, you know, we're going back to the early 80s, early 90s. And uh, we'd have pagers and, we, you know, the Which was the would, cutting edge of tech. Yeah, back tech, the yeah, you had that cool pager and stuff, you know. You had the brick phone. It was yeah. the brick phone. If you, you get on the brick phone, I forget what it cost you to use the phone back then. But if things didn't go in, you could use the brick phone as a weapon. Right. <laughs> Wait, like 20 pounds, right? How efficient. Yeah. And we'd get, the, we'd get the page, you know. And, hey, man, there's three of the bad guys over in this bar. Girls, see it. Bam. There goes the team. We were thriving on it. Nights it was we'd on. be sitting around like we'd have the best, the hottest girls on us. We knew we were going home to pound on the hottest girls and do our thing. And we were like, hottest night sucked. We didn't get no calls. <laughs> you know, we were so deep into that, you know. I want to segue into the into the war um, specifically and, and, and some just stories and, and such. But before we do that, I want to give uh, another example if I may, you had uh, talked about how, you know, you're the opposite of stealth, right? You're basically walking around with a sign that said, arrest me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you love what you did. You were always in the same place. You were doing your thing. You were loud. A good example of that happened in 1999 when you came out on national television <laughs> with the rest of the Hells Angels in the front on your motorcycles with Hulk Hogan and the rest.